uh, that each one of us have. And I don't know if you can remember back to when you were a kid and some of the things that you would just do on your own. Um, but each one of us, especially for those of us who are parents, we see this all the time. And uh, sometimes kids use their creativity for good, and uh, sometimes not so much. And so that was me when I was a kid. It's usually not so much. And uh, I remember one particular day, I grew up in a, a small Midwestern town in rural Minnesota, about 9,000 people. And as one of those communities, one thing about a small town is you just kind of have to run the city. Or, you know, you can go wherever you want, parents don't worry about you. You leave that in the morning, come back at sunset for dinner. Um, and that was our town. And we shared a backyard with uh, another large family and a really close lot of friends. So we were always, you know, having home run derbies in the backyard and, and playing Nerf wars and all types of things. And, and I remember one afternoon in particular, we had a fishing reel, and we had one of those weights on the end of the fishing reel where you could practice casting. And so we had, you know, created this big scenario where we were out in this ship and uh, fishing for our food and trying to catch a Moby Dick or, you know, some big whale. And uh, we started casting it, and then we turned into a competition to see who could cast the furthest, and then it became who could cast the highest. And in the process, uh, we got this, this weight stuck in the tree and over a branch. And so we began to you know, reel it back up, and we watched it raise up in the air, and hit the button, and watched it drop again, and we raised back up, and thought, you know, we can have some fun with this. And uh, our, our neighborhood had a lot, of, a lot of little kids, and we were kind of on the older side, and so we were always kind of poking fun and messing with the little kids. And so we thought, you know what? If we set this over uh, a sidewalk and like drop something really scary, we could really freak out some kids. You know? So that was our idea. So we went out and we did this, and you know, we found a stuffed animal and we stuffed it with rocks, so it would drop, you know, really fast. Uh, and then we tore it up and we tied different things to it. We spray painted it to make it the most grotesque thing, you know, that we could make. And uh, and we found that that not only could we put it through one tree, but we could put it through several trees and actually be, be pretty far away and drop this thing. And so so we were hiding. We actually set ourselves up on the second floor of the, the balcony, you know, four houses away, and we set it up to drop in the crosswalk of the street where people were walking through. And so we're doing this, and and our initial idea is just we're just kind of you know, scare the kids and have fun with it. And, and so we're doing this, and, but then we realized really fast that adults were just as terrified of this thing as kids were, which really upped the stakes. You know, it opened up a whole new world of possibilities. And so, and so we're sitting up there, and, and sure enough, you know, kids are biking by, and we drop this thing, and they just freak out and stand there and watch, and we reel it up and fly back up in the tree, and they just, you know, kind of scared and they're looking for it. And, uh, and so we were waiting just for our chance to, to get, a, you know, another adult. And so this, we'll see this gal walking like three, four blocks away, and she's got two bags of groceries on either hand. And we know if she doesn't duck in one of these houses, she's going to walk right through a line of fire. She keeps on this thing, you know. So we're up there giggling, and we're just, you know, waiting for this thing, watching her walk. And sure enough, she starts into the intersection right across the crosswalk. And at just the right moment, I hit the button, and it drops, just like a bat out of hell. So it just drops and lands right in one of her grocery bags. And she's screaming to throw the bubble and her bags are everywhere. And she really took off, but she doesn't know what to be angry at. You know, so she's like pacing around and looking up in the street. And doesn't really know what she's looking for. And we're just, we're crying, laughing all the time. And, and then it dawned on us, you know, that, that we could, if, if a car turns right off the main strip under our street, we could probably get a car. And so, so that was our next idea. Like, that's where it progressed. Like, okay. We can do this, you know. The only catch was you couldn't really see the car coming, you could just see like the tires from these trees. And so one person would have to hang out the balcony and peer through the trees and tell the other person, maybe one, two, three, drop. And so we got really close a couple of times. And one guy could drop right in front of one car and this guy slams on the brakes. And he gets out and he starts yelling, 
but he doesn't know where to yell at. You know, so he's like yelling in the tree and tries to climb the tree. Uh, and he's just convinced that somebody's up there. And we're wiping tears. Like, this is the best. But we haven't made a car yet. We know if we really hone in, it's possible. We can land this thing right on you know, a car. So finally, you can see this car coming. It's moving really fast. And, and he's like, this is the one. All right, ready? All right, one, two, three. And I hit that button. And right about that moment, he goes, no, 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 it's a cop. Sure enough, it was the perfect shot. It was too, like, it was too late, and the thing just hit the hood. And the guy flips on the lights, flips on the siren, and he jumps out. He doesn't know where we're at. And so he's, he's running around the car, and he's looking up in the tree, and we just hit the deck. And there's really nowhere we can go, because the only way to get off that balcony is to stand up and open the door, and we know like, he'll spot us right away. So he's searching around, and the first thing he does is he retreats out on the screen. And so he starts looking at the houses that are closer to the intersection. He's feeling around the windows because he's just convinced, you know, it's coming from inside. And we're three houses away, you know. So he's not even close to us. And, and he searches around for a while and walks around the back. And we both immediately hop, you know, and walk, run inside the house. And our hearts are going, we're terrified. And, and uh, we didn't think, of course, you know, eventually he's going to be able to see that spring and follow it right to the balcony and know right where we are. And so sure enough, we're we'll peeking out the window. And we watch him, he finally spots it. And he follows it through these trees, and he just keeps walking, walking, walking towards us. And so I told my buddy, I was like, you stay here. And I ran out the back door. <laughs> both of our parents were at our house, and we shared a backyard. So I ran, and I made it. And uh, this cops are pounding on the door. And my buddy calls me. And I make sure to grab the phone. You know, he's like, he's knocking on the door. What do I do? <laughs> I said, don't answer. Whatever you do not answer the door. You are not home. Your parents are over here. You can't get caught. He said, no, I'm freaked out. i got to come to where you are. So don't run out the door. He runs out the door, and the cop catches him, and, you know, walks him over. And uh, and I'm like, the, the parents are sitting there and they see him walking through the backyard. My parents immediately turn to me like, Aaron, what did you do? <laughs> it wasn't the first time. And, uh, and the cop, you know, he was great about it. And I'll never forget what he said, though. He said, he said, boys, he said, that was pretty creative. I've got to admit, that was pretty creative. The next time, use your creativity to do something meaningful and constructive rather than constructive. And uh, it never really, you know, don't at that moment, just how profound, uh, just how profound those words could be. You know, and that's just, that's kids. And for those of us who are parents, like, we see this really in our kids all the time. You know, if you're a parent, you've ever bought your kid a very expensive toy that came in a big box. What ends up being played with most of the time? You know, the favorite part of the toy oftentimes ends up being that 50 cent box. And before you know it, the expensive toy is in the corner, and that box has become a castle or a tank or a submarine. And we see this intrinsic creativity in kids all the time, and nobody needs to tell them to use their imagination. They just do. You know, nobody has to tell them to be creative. They just are. Uh, this week I was reading a, a study on divergent thinking. And uh, divergent thinking is essentially thinking outside the box. It's thinking creatively. And, and what this study did is they studied different age groups of people and, and, and then they, they categorized them where they fell as far as uh, creative genius uh, in the genius category uh, percentages. And so um, what they did is they found in, age, in kids, ages 3 to 5, uh, that 98% of kids, ages 3 to 5, fall in the genius category by di- for divergent thinking. Uh, and then they, the next thing they did is they, they studied kids from ages 8 to 10. And in that age group, ages 8 to 10, that number dropped to 32%. So 32%. Still a lot of them, but it's, you know, it's falling. 
In teenagers, they did the same thing. We found that that number drops to just 10% in, in teenagers. Uh, and then in, in adults, uh, that number drops to just 2%. Just 2% of adults about falling in the genius category for divergent So to, to be creative, although as we grow older, uh, it tends to fade away. It tends to be something that we don't utilize. Um, as kids, it's something that we're born with. It's something that's very innate. And, and this really shouldn't surprise us because this is something that the Bible speaks to from the get-go. Uh, it's something, it's a strain that we find throughout the scriptures, and we find immediately in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 2, uh, this is what it says. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, verses 19. It says, Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. And, and just before this, by the way, he's just created Adam. So this is, this is right on the tail end of Adam being created in God's image. It says that God brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was his name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. So it's incredible. It's all, it's almost as soon as Adam was created, God invites Adam into the creative process. So out of nothing, God creates you know, these, these incredible array of animals and birds in the sky and fish in the sea and and the animals are on the ground, and God gives them form, God gives them shape, He brings them to Adam to give them an identity. And then right after that, we find that you know, God tells Adam and Eve uh, when they leave the garden that they are to, you know, that they're commissioned essentially to go and to multiply and fill the earth and to, to conquer the earth and to cultivate it. But one of the things we find is that God doesn't give them a how-to manual, or He doesn't give them a step-by-step instructions. He just says, Go. And so he unleashes them on this earth that is that is untouched by human hands. It's unexplored. And it's undeveloped. And he doesn't tell them how they're supposed to make a living, how they're supposed to build shelter, uh, exactly where they should settle down, or how they should live. He just says, go. You know, we find the exact same thing uh, in the New Testament. Uh, in the New Testament, it's the same thing. You know, we, we find that Jesus enters onto the scene. Uh, he's, that, he's the promised Messiah. He dies and, and is raised again from the ground. And then he says, I'm going to now go away so I can send my Holy Spirit to you and continue my work through my people, through my church, so you can be my hands and my feet, go out and make disciples of all nations. But again, he doesn't give us a, he doesn't give us a manual for how we can do this. He doesn't give us step-by-step instructions. Instead, he gives us freedom to use our creativity. So one of the things that we see in the movement of Jesus is this incredible, diverse expression of what it means to be the church. And it's a very, it's a very beautiful thing. It's, it's a reflection of our Creator God. We're reading the same Bible, preaching the same gospel, but if you travel the world, we find churches that are so incredibly different from one another. And for example, uh, the House Church movement in China uh, is something that's uh, been incredible. It's, it looks very different from what church looks like here. In China, it's illegal uh, to be a professing Christian and be a part of a, a church that's not controlled by the government. And so what's been happening there in order for Christians to be able to meet together, that we meet in each other's homes, and oftentimes what they'll do is they'll show up uh, every half hour, hour, one, or two at a time in order to not draw attention to themselves. And then they'll meet together finally and, and worship together and study the scriptures together and encourage one another. Um, and so you have these very small house churches of, you know, eight, ten or so, uh, and it's just blown up. It looks nothing like what we do here. Uh, apart from studying the scriptures and doing life together, encouraging one another, worshiping God, looks completely different. And now it's incredible. There's actually more believers in China than there are in the U.S. And so it's just exploded. You know, last year I, I learned of a, of a church 
out of over 50,000. And I want to say it's in, it's in South America. They have no building. They meet on the side of the mountain. Like, I don't even have a category for that. You know, like they didn't teach me that in seminary. Like how to manage the churches of 50,000 or more on the side of the mountain. You know, it's not there. Like, I, I can't even wrap my mind around that. But it's something that's happening. It's a completely beautiful, unique expression of what it means to be the church. Compare that to Willow Creek. Willow Creek is a church of, I want to say, 15 to 20,000 in Chicago, very influential church. They very much are organized and run like a Fortune 500 company. And part of their mission that they understand it is not just being the church, but resourcing hundreds, perhaps thousands of churches all over the world. So they, they meet. Right? Compare that to the church that we started this church out Right, Mosaic uh, LA, it's a, down, a nightclub in downtown LA. A lot of aspiring actors, filmmakers, creatives. Um, looks very, very different. Compare that to a church like Courageous Church in Atlanta, Georgia, which is essentially a community of activists who meet just once a month for worship. Every single one of them a diverse expression of what it means to follow Jesus, to be a part of the church. And so what we find is that God gives us incredible, not only capacity to create, who gives us the freedom to create, not just corporately as the church, but individually in our own lives. But there's a catch. And perhaps you've already gone to to this place in your mind. It's that although each one of us has been given this incredible, unique capacity to create, the truth is some people don't really create much at all. Some people don't do a whole lot with it. Um, Nobody can force you to create. I know we can force you to, to produce and to be creative and to create something with your life. Um, every single one of us that I've been to the guests, I've known people, I haven't been with people, um, that just kind of go through life and they take whatever that's given to them. Uh, they're not very proactive. They don't really like their life, it seems. They don't really hate it. It could be worse. And so they just settle into a job that they don't like and believe in. Uh, they don't work a job in order to fuel something they believe in so that they can do that. Uh, they just kind of exist rather than live. And, and so what I want to look, I want to look at real quick is John chapter 15 because I believe that although on one hand I can begin to understand why somebody who's disconnected from their creator, who doesn't know Jesus, who struggles with feelings of purposelessness, meaninglessness, why they might live a life that is not created and not productive and just existing. But I believe that it is so clear throughout the scriptures that God commissions us to be a part of creating something beautiful with our lives. And so I'm going to look at John chapter 15. So if you have a Bible, that's where we're going. If you need one, just raise your hand. We'll get you one. Uh, if you have a smartphone, a new version, chapter 15. But what you're going to find here, by the way, there's, there's so much in this passage that is so good that we could spend a lot of time talking about. Um, we don't have a lot of time. And so I want you to, to read this uh, with the lens of what we're talking about. What you're going to find is Jesus is talking about, he's using a metaphor that he uses quite a bit. And he's talking about producing fruit. And, and so I just make a mental note as, as we're reading this passage together. How many times Jesus is talking about this creativity, this, this producing of fruit in the lives of believers? So starting in verse 1, this is what it says. It says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. 
Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he does not produce fruit. He is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. So abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, and my joy may be in you, Joy may be full. And skipping down to verse 16 one more time. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. A lot of fruit time. Right? It's, it's almost so overwhelming. It's just, it's just, by the end, it's almost like he's eating a dead horse because he's just over and over and over talking about this idea that my sacrifice, my people, those who are connected to God, they produce fruit, that there is, uh, there is an overflow of what I do in people and through people. And, and so Jesus is using this metaphor of bearing fruit. It's something that he does a lot because for, for people who for centuries have, have very much their survival is contingent on things like farming, uh, bearing fruit is a very powerful image of Jesus. It's something that represents uh, something that is, is life-giving. And so Jesus talks about this idea of bearing fruit, that, that there is both an inward reality and an outward reality to our faith. That God accomplishes something in our heart, He accomplishes something through our lives when we connect to Him. Elsewhere, Jesus uses this metaphor that way. And one of the things He primarily is speaking about, specifically, is, is that uh, when He's talking about producing fruit, it's life change. Right? And, and here we find that, that, that one of the main things when Jesus is said talking, He says that, that you will grow in love. So God accomplishes something in our heart when we connect to Jesus, when we lean into him and surrender to his work in our life. We grow in love, but that impacts the lives of others. And so then he uses us to produce fruit, not just in our own life, but in the lives of others. I want to just read really quickly one more time every verse that in this passage that refers to this idea of creating and producing through us. All right, I'm the true vine, verse 1. My Father is the vine dresser. Verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Right? So he is not mine. Right? Those, every branch that is in me that does not bear fruit is really not in me. The Father takes him away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes specifically so that he may bear more fruit. Right? Which gives us maybe a little bit of insight into sometimes why God takes us through hard seasons. Where we have to learn things the hard way. Right? Where we have to persevere. And where we have to... Uh, put our head down and, and really fight to remain faithful. It's because God desires to produce more. It's that important. Right, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. Verse 8, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So one of the main ways that God is glorified is through us, through our lives, right? Through what we are producing, he is producing through our lives, and that's proof Essentially, that we are his disciples. And then this gives us this imagery of judgment for those who do not produce which, which is uh, very real. And then skipping down to verse 16. For you did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit 
should abide. So, so Jesus, I mean, he is just crystal clear on this, that he needs to get across, he wants to get across, that, that those who follow him, who connect to him, that God is doing something through their life. And if he's not, if there's not fruit in through our life, then they're not his disciples. And it's, it's very intriguing to me that Jesus feels the need to say this. Right? Because if this is something that is, that is natural, if this is something that is that is true of every person who claims the name of Christ, well, then he wouldn't need to say this, would he? Right? But Jesus goes out of his way because apparently it's very possible to associate oneself, oneself with Jesus right? and to do a number of good things, maybe very religious things, and to be so disconnected from the person of Jesus Christ. Right? That we can know all the right answers uh, and be very religious people, know all the right answers about God for God not to actually be in us at all. And so the truth that we find here and elsewhere throughout the scriptures and everywhere uh, as we look in the New Testament is that we are the hands and the feet of Jesus, that we are created uniquely to create uniquely. That to create is not just a suggestion. It is a command. It's a central part of what it means to follow Jesus. See, I believe one of the, the central problems, one of the things that kills us, one of the things that, that is the cause of, of so much evil in the world it is not just uh, it's not just sin, and it's not just that, that there are evil people, because there are evil people, but it's, it's that the people who are influencing the world, and the people who are the, the world changers, the shapers, the people who are informing the conversations that we're having, uh, are oftentimes not the people who are seeking first and foremost to honor God. Right? But there are people who are seeking to honor and serve themselves. But I think the people who are continually pushing forward and innovating and creating at a disproportionate rate, but the people that are, that are influencing so many of us are not followers of Christ. They're, they're not people who are deciding to honor God first and foremost. And meanwhile, while this is going on, I think what ends up happening is oftentimes in the church, in Christianity, the way that we end up defining holiness is not by what we do, it's by what we don't do. Right? So we become a people who don't drink. We become a people who don't cuss. We don't watch radar movies. Right? We don't smoke, drink, or chew, or they don't do. And we become people who are defined by what we don't do. And meanwhile, the world changers, the, the shapers, the people who are, who are pressing into their creativity are not motivated by this love for God and this love for people. They're people that are disconnected from their creator. I think for most of us, oftentimes, our, our sins are not sins of commission, they're sins of omission. Right? Because we are people who we become known by what we don't do. We're people that don't do a whole lot of evil, rather than people who shape the world by doing a whole lot of good. Uh, one, of my, one of my favorite artists, one of my favorite artists is uh, Vincent Van Gogh. And uh, for most of my life, I've just, I've loved his work more than any other uh, artist. But up until recently, I really didn't know much uh, about his life at all. And Vincent Van Gogh is, is a, He's most famously known for, for his paintings, and he's a Dutch artist uh, who had a huge influence on 20th century art, um, almost incomparable uh, to any other artist. And, and chances are um, that you've seen a number of these pieces, right? You come face to face with his work. And uh, I think it was named the Congress. You guys the ones that are telling me um, that at one point, Vincent Van Gogh was an evangelist, uh, which blew my mind. So, you know, it's just for the last couple of months, like, I've just been reading um, a lot about Vincent Van Gogh. Get enough of the guy because he's such an intriguing person, and for him, he was definitely a person whose personal faith in Christ drove uh, a lot of what he created in the way that in which he lived. 
And on the side note, pretty intriguing, I don't know if you know this, but Vincent Van Gogh never picked up a paintbrush until he was almost 30 years old. One of the most influential artists of all time did not pick up a paintbrush until he was almost 30 years old. So side question, just out of curiosity, Think about what the world might be missing out on because we lack the courage to attempt what we've been thinking about and attempting for so long. Amazing. To start reading about uh, Vincent Van Gogh, and uh, pretty incredible guy, he, uh, in his own words, um, he had within himself uh, a deep desire, this is the way he put it, to preach the gospel everywhere. And so as we look at his story, it's, it's pretty incredible. For a while, he was a Methodist minister's assistant. And, uh, and from there, he moved on and, and, and translated uh, passages of the Bible uh, into English, French, and German. Uh, at one point, he tried to study theology in Amsterdam, but he kept failing the entrance exam. So he never really got in. So then he moved on to a, a Protestant uh, minister's school and uh, studied there for a short period of time. And from there, he actually moved to a very small village to take a temporary post as an evangelist uh, to spread the gospel. One of the things, interestingly, that Van Gogh did when he moved to this community is it was a very poor community, uh, it was a mining community, very blue column. And apparently, Van Gogh understood our core value, wellness, culture is not optional, because rather than rather than taking on like, the luxuries that can come with the priesthood, he chose to live in poverty and to live like his people. Very simple life, very, very hardworking, uh, but a very poor life as well. And what ended up happening is that he was actually rejected by the local priesthood. And those who were in positions of leadership in the church did not like that at all. And so they actually dismissed him, saying that he was undermining the dignity of the priesthood. And this had a huge influence on Mandela. In fact, in many ways, I'm not sure that he ever fully recovered from that. And so what we end up finding in this story is that he was, uh, he was very troubled. And he had a very hard time reconciling what he saw in the church with what he read in the Bible. He had a very hard time reconciling what he understood about Jesus with what he saw in Jesus' people. And uh, never recovered from that. And one of the things that Van Gogh left behind for us were hundreds of letters that he wrote to his brother Theo. And so we get like a very intimate glimpse into the heart and soul of this amazing artist. And so what I want to do is I want to read for you an excerpt from one of the letters uh, because I think it's extremely profound and very powerful. This is a letter from Vincent Van Gogh Theo, uh, October, uh, in October of 1884. This is what he says. He says, I tell you, if one wants to be active, one must not be afraid of going wrong. One must not be afraid of making mistakes now and then. Many people think that they will become good just by doing no harm. But that's a lie. And you yourself used to call it that. That way lies stagnation, mediocrity. Then he begins to talk about the artistic process. He says, says this, he says, just slap anything on when you see a blank canvas staring you in the face like something is on. You don't know how paralyzing that is, that stare of a blank canvas, which says to the painter, you can't do a thing. The canvas has an idiotic stare and mesmerizes some painters so much that they turn into idiots themselves. Many painters are afraid in front of the blank canvas. The blank canvas is afraid of the real passionate painter who dares and who has broken the spell you can't once and for all. And now he begins to tie this into life itself. And he says, he says, life itself, too, is forever turning an infinitely vacant, dispiriting blank side towards man, on which nothing appears. 
any more than it does on other things. But no matter how big it may be, how dead life may appear to be at times, the man of faith, of energy, of warmth, who knows something will not be put off so easily. He wades in and he does something and he stays with it. In short, he violates or defiles, they say. But let them talk, those cold theologians. I love that he ends it that way. Let them talk, those cold theologians. You see, you know, Van Gogh understood on far too personal level, perhaps, that, that there could be a huge difference between what one says or claims to believe and one that actually what one creates with their life. And, and he could never fully reconcile you know, what he saw and perceived in those who claimed the name of Jesus and did very little with it, who created very little. And one of Van Gogh's kind of life themes was, you know what, I'm going to prove what I believe in and I'm going to prove who I am as a man and as a human by what I create. Uh, it's pretty extraordinary. And, and one of the encouraging things, by the way, with this is that, you know, in some sense, like the church has always been jacked up. You know, and it has always been jacked up. In fact, if you don't believe me, just read the book, uh, read either letter to the Corinthians, first and second Corinthians, and you realize really quick that it didn't take long for things to get really messed up. Right? But there's been seasons, there's been periods of, uh, of, History throughout the church, where um, the the reaction was was paralytic. You know, that where the reaction to imperfection and flaws and sin was to do very little, right? So to go through the religious motions, which create very little. But then there are several seasons where the movement of Jesus has just, despite the flaws, despite the imperfections, despite the ongoing sin in each one of our lives that we're continually wrestling through and repenting to God over and asking for Him to take and transform, regardless of all of the junk. They just continue to create. And as a result, like during certain seasons of the church, God has used the church to blow things up, to bring to the world, to influence the world in the greatest art, right? to bring to the, the world truth and beauty uh, through the movement of Jesus. It's incredible. If you go to the, any university, any major university that study art, there is no way to avoid the influence of the movement of Jesus on art history. It is absolutely it's absolutely everywhere. You know, if you go to a university and you study classical music, for example, go study classical music, uh, you're going to end up studying so much music that was actually birthed in the church. Right? For example, Johann Sebastian Bach, right? one of the, I mean, largely renowned, one of the greatest composers of classical music Europe has ever seen. Most of his music was written to be used in the Lutheran church. Right? They were church hymns. Right, if you study, uh, if you continue in that field of study, you're going to come across so many sacred uh, works that were created by guys like Mozart and, and Beethoven and Handel. Right, if you study uh, fine art, you're going to uh, inevitably come across guys like Van Gogh and study study his work. Um, you're going to study probably some of the architecture of Europe's great cathedrals. If you study art history, it's, it's everywhere. Right, if you study vocal music performance, right, you're going to you're going to sing songs that were originally sung in churches as worship songs to Jesus. There's no way around it. In fact, you go to any local performance uh, uh, competition uh, for music groups here that are singing uh, classical pieces, uh, just listen. Whether it's high school, whether it's college, the pieces that are still the standard, the pieces that are still being performed are sacred works, um, which is absolutely amazing. You know, at, at various times throughout history, the greatest art, the greatest literature, the greatest architecture 
has come for the movement of Jesus. But somewhere in the last 150 years, that's changed quite a bit, at least in the West. And somewhere along the way, we stopped pressing forward, we stopped creating, and we became, in many places, in many ways, consumers. We became consumers of religion. We, call it, we, came, we stopped being a people that go out and create with their lives and use our doctrine and creativity to do whatever we've been called to do with excellence. And we just started existing and coming in and sitting down and, and taking it. And I believe, at heart and soul, I believe that the church should be the most creative place in the world. That I believe that, that we should be churning out world changers and world shapers in every single field that demands the creativity of the world. And it's part of, I believe that's part of our call following Jesus, is to do whatever we are called to do with excellence. The greatest that we can do. In fact, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says this. It says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So if you, if you are a painter, paint, right? Paint. And paint with excellence. If you are a teacher, teach to the best of your ability. If you are a student, study to make it count. If you are a carpenter, build and build well. If you are uh, if you are a graphic designer, design. If you are a cook, cook. If you are a mom, raise your family in a way that honors and brings glory to God. Use your creativity to do that to the best of your ability. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That is, that is our unique creative path. And that's going to look different for you, and it's going to look different for me, and it's going to look different for the person beside you. And that's a beautiful thing. That's a reflection of our creative God. So I've been talking too long, so I'm going to wrap up with this. I have more, but I'm long-winded, so I'm going to be quiet. But there's one part of this conversation that we can't ignore, and it's the most important part. See, we have been, you and I have been created to create. We have been uniquely created to create uniquely. And that is the truth of it. But, we cannot have a conversation about creativity without also talking about character. Because the truth is, character shapes what you create. Right? So we are not separate from what we create. Right? If, if God gives us a blank canvas, metaphorically speaking, if God gives us a blank canvas, and he says, paint, paint something beautiful, paint something meaningful, the truth is, you and I do not bring to our work an objective brush. Right? The Bible talks about that you and I are talking to God, that we are fallen, we are broken. And as artists, as people, as moms and dads and carpenters and teachers, we create out of the condition of our soul. So we bring to our work either beauty and meaning, that meaning that is connected to our creator, or we bring sickness and brokenness. Right? So we can't talk about creativity without also talking about character, because we create out of who we are. Well, any of this. It's Proverbs 4. It says, Above all else, of your heart. For everything you do flows from it. Above all else, of your heart. For everything you do flows from it. In other words, everywhere we go, everything we do, everyone we come in contact with, every moment, every conversation, every relationship, every task, every, every goal, every dream. Everything we are creating with our lives up until this point of moving forward is being shaped by who we are. And so when we talk about creativity being a natural result of spirituality, part of that is taking advantage of the God-given creative capacity that you have. But part of that is getting intentional about discovering how God's wired you uniquely. 
your personality, your strengths, your temperament, your gifts. And part of that is using that, beginning to discover it, and just doing the best of what you have, creating something meaningful. Right? For some of you, maybe that's your step. Right? Maybe for you, you just haven't been creating much with your life. You know, there's if you look at your life, maybe as you look at it and we're reading about Jesus talking about producing fruit, you're not sure what fruit is going to produce out of your life. Right? So part of that is just manning up, right? And, and taking advantage of that and really leaning into how God's created you. Right? But maybe for you, uh, your story is very different. Maybe for you, you've been working very hard on creating for a very long time and, and doing a number of very religious things. You've been going to church pretty faithfully. Maybe you're entirely faithfully, volunteering your time here and there. Right? But for you, you've been trying to treat all the externals and be religious externally, but it's the condition of your soul that's affecting what you're creating. And none of it ever brings satisfaction, never really brings the kind of joy that Jesus is talking about. But it never, it just feels like, it tastes like ash in your mouth, right? because you're creating from a sick soul. For you, right, it's going to start with surrender. It starts with repentance. Right? It starts with coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, my soul is sick, and I need you. Because treating the external without treating the internal, it only leads to more sickness. You know, as we're talking about creativity as a natural result of spirituality, what we're not saying, what we're not saying, please hear this, what we're not saying is that God demands that you do all these works in order to earn his life. But it's to draw closer to him by earning your way to God. The Bible says that's absolutely impossible. It will only lead to death. It will only lead to disillusionment. And you'll walk away worse than you were before. But rather, that as we transform people, that when we surrender heart and soul to God's ongoing creative work, that we can't help but create something beautiful with our lives. And when we do that, God produces this incredible fruit. He does this incredible, unexplainable work inside of us. And then he begins to do it You have been created to you. You have been created uniquely to uniquely created. Let's pray.